You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this edition of The Zeitgeist. Uh, I'm here today with AICGS senior fellow and director of our program on society, culture, and politics, Eric Langenbacher. Uh, Eric, uh, great to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Yeah, uh, and we're going to talk today about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting German politics. Uh, we're going to start off by talking a little bit about the substantive policy measures, uh, but I think we want to also touch on how this is uh, changing Germany's politics, because that is uh, certainly been notable if you, for those, uh, for those of us who are following the, the, the support for Chancellor Merkel, and there has been so much written in the international press and in the United States about the contrast between Merkel's leadership in the crisis and the leadership of the U.S. government under, under President Trump. These are, in some ways, polar, polar opposites in their styles, um, although not always in the policies. And, uh, and so we want to disentangle some of those things and, uh, and try to understand what, what this crisis um, might tell us about Germany and about what the future of German politics uh, will hold. Um, so, uh, so with that, maybe Eric, I'll just uh, but let let's just uh, dive right in, uh, and then maybe we'll start with the substantive measures that uh, have been have been implemented uh, and and have been changing in in recent weeks. Yeah, well, let me start with a couple of observations. Uh, first of all, Jeff, I think you're exactly correct to point out that the debate about measures or the lifting of measures is very similar in Germany or the United States, um, but the tone is very different. In the United States, everything seems to be politicized, seems to be polarized. In Germany, the tone, with a few exceptions here and there, just seems much more civil, and I think that says a lot about uh, the current state of political culture and political competition uh, in those two countries. But overall, the Germans are having exactly the same debate about when to loosen up restrictions, what kinds of restrictions to, uh, to do away with, which ones to maintain. So it's, a, it's very, very, very similar. And I think that that is uh, uh, quite fascinating. The difference, of course, is that Germany is starting from a very different point of departure right now. Yes, I know that we're still in the early phases of this pandemic, although it's hard to imagine what latter phases will bring. In any case, uh, Germany's done a very, very good job so far, as all the figures with infection rates and deaths show. Uh, things are uh, not so good in the United States as of yet. So, you know, part of the discussion about the timing of loosening is the timing of when you start the discussion. And I just think that Germany's in a different place currently than the United States. Yeah, uh, and, and maybe just to, to bring in some of those uh, data points. Uh, for example, Germany has had... Uh, about 158,000 uh, coronavirus cases as of today. Today is the 28th of April, uh, 2020. And of that, there have been about 6,000 deaths. So as you said, Eric, a, a relatively low uh, death rate, which is attributable to a variety of factors, uh, the German health system, the fact that there is a large number of intensive care uh, uh, beds in, in the German health system so that they have never been overwhelmed by the cases uh, and so forth. I think what's, uh, if we look at the kind of snapshot in time, uh, yesterday there were approximately a thousand new cases reported 
uh, in Germany, just under 1,000. And in the United States, there were about 22,000. So I think if we, if we consider Germany having about one quarter of the population of the United States, uh, there you see the contrast in the current dynamics, um, which, uh, which of course uh, are extremely important for, uh, for how, how the countries are gonna manage this looking ahead. I would shamelessly point out that we had a podcast discussion from just a few days ago with the German health minister, Jens Spahn, in which we talked about some of these, uh, some of these uh, facts and also how the German government is responding. Where we stand now is a loosening of restrictions on schools, um, for example. Um, uh, schools across the country are coming back into session, although in different, um, uh, at different grade levels in different, uh, in different states, Germany being a federal system. Uh, and uh, there is uh, there's also been some resumption of production. Um, a story yesterday about uh, Volkswagen uh, resuming production, uh, although at a low level. And I think what's important is to see the, the kind of connections that the German government has established. On the one hand, they have a, a fairly robust testing system in place. They are building out their tracing um, infrastructure and and then the easing of measures is connected to those two factors you know these things kind of fit in an organic whole and i think it's fair to say that uh, that that uh kind of interconnectedness and unity of measures has not always shown through in the in the u.s federal government if i could uh, if i could just jump in there for a second um that's exactly right i mean i think that we're starting to see fundamental institutional differences between the German model of federalism and the U.S. model of federalism. So you could even consider Germany to be a, a sense of coordinated federalism, and the United States is increasingly one of competitive federalism. So one of the things that has struck me on numerous occasions looking at Germany over the last couple of months is, sure, there's some acrimony amongst the states and the different minister presidents of the states about what to do and whatnot. I remember when Bavaria... Um, under Marco Suda was one of the first to kind of shut down. I mean, there was a lot of pushback elsewhere, including from Armin Laschet in um, North Rhine-Westphalia and elsewhere. But literally within, I think, about three days, everybody got on the same page and you had kind of a, a coordinated, um, standardized response across the country. In the United States, as we know, it's entirely different. It's not just that states are competing with each other for scarce supplies. Uh, for testing or to protect the frontline workers in um, our medical establishments, but they're also not coordinating their policy responses. And of course, with something like a pandemic, what happens on one side of the country, however big it is, is going to affect the rest of the country at one point um, or another. So I think that we're starting to see fundamental institutional differences uh, between these two systems. And I frankly think that German federalism is working a little better than U.S. federalism at this point in time. I like that uh, encapsulation of coordinated federalism versus competitive federalism, um, and and I think that's something we'll we'll come back to, and I think we're going to come back to it uh, in the in the coming months. Uh, I think the other thing that is really striking about uh, about the situation in Germany has been the extremely high degree of public support for the for the measures that have been introduced, and also confidence in the government's ability. Um, uh, Angela Merkel has soaring popularity, which now rivals uh, the, 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 the previous heights uh, she's reached uh, at various times over the 14 years she's been in power. Um, and just uh, as one example, 
Um, there, the, the most recent uh, nationwide poll on these issues from, from a few days ago, the so-called Politbarometer, uh, and from the 24th of, of April, 83% um, of Germans are satisfied uh, with the work of Chancellor Merkel. That is a historic high. Uh, and 90% of Germans are satisfied with the work of the, of the federal government. Uh, and you add to that 87% support the limitations that have been placed on public life. Um, uh, the, that contrast with, uh, with the United States, uh, I think, is, is quite striking. Yeah, and if you look at the um, more regular public opinion polls, the so-called Sonntagsfrage, if there were an election, a national election on Sunday, who would you vote for? The CDU's been at 38, 39% over the last, or polls from the last few days. Um, and I mean, that's five, six percent more than they got at the last Bundestag election in 2017. And I don't think the CDU has been polling like that for a very long time. Um, we also see the SPD, well, maybe doing marginally better, but there's no real bump for the SPD, which is interesting. Uh, the Greens have taken a big hit. They're down about five. Uh, the FDP has been hovering around the five percent uh, threshold for a while, although it looks like they're starting to do a little better, and maybe we'll talk about that later on because FDP leader um, Lindner is uh, really starting to kind of push back as a real kind of like oppositional figure and whatnot. And then we also see the AFD, the alternative for Germany down, um, uh, maybe not as much as many people would hope for, uh, but certainly down, you know, about uh, two to two and a half percent um, off their uh, electoral result from 2017 and certainly well below where they were polling six months ago. So we're right. starting to see real changes in the, in the support for the different parties. And, and of course, the question that nobody really can, uh, can say with certain, answer with certainty is whether these will be persistent trends uh, or whether these will be anomalies. But I think maybe to start with, uh, with the last point you mentioned, Eric, if you look at the AFD's support in October, of 2019, six months ago, they were uh, at around 16% in, in national polls, and now at at six percent. Which, you know, they, they would they would have to be be worried about even entering the Bundestag um, and meeting the five percent threshold uh, if there were an election uh, tomorrow. Now uh, we have about 18 months until the next German election, uh, so uh, so. I think any predictions of the death of the AFD would be extremely premature. But um, what we've seen is a an inability of of the AFD to turn its kind of populist rage, which it used so effectively in the migration crisis of 2015 and 2016, into anything that looks like political traction. Um, they've been unable to to uh, to really shape the debate. And, um, and they have not very much concrete to offer. I happen to be you know, at look at, looking at the AFD's messaging uh, just to, over the last couple of weeks, what issues are they, are they harping on? One, they're complaining that they're not getting enough media attention, uh, especially in the main state-funded broadcasters. Um, they are complaining about, uh, about immigrants, uh, in particular, a program to bring us a relatively small number of, of uh, unaccompanied children who have been stranded in Greece um, to, to Germany to help take some of the pressure off of Greece. And they've been um, reviving their anti-debt uh, and kind of pro-austerity rhetoric uh, and anti-EU rhetoric, which was really the origin of the AFD 
back in the um, uh, the earlier part of uh, of the last decade um, during the financial the eurozone crisis. So basically, they're playing their greatest hits record, and and their greatest hits record it's uh, it's really not uh, capturing the public imagination. Yeah, but I mean, as you pointed out, there's 18 months until uh, the Bundestag election in the fall of 2021. Um, we should likely have a, a vaccine for this horrible virus by uh, hopefully no later than the new year. So things are going to start to normalize themselves, I would hope, about a year from now, um, six months or so before that election. You know, I've been thinking a lot about these things. Um, you know, one story that's kind of stuck in my mind from Germany was uh, uh, asparagus. You know, as everybody knows, Germans love their asparagus, you know, that kind of white, um, not the green variety. And it's um, Spargelzeit. It's asparagus time in Germany right now. So you have, you know, acres and acres of asparagus that has to be harvested so that Germans can, you know, um, appreciate the delicacy in the confines of their homes. Well, they've been using seasonal labor for, well, farmers have for years to bring the crop in. And this year, of course, with all the restrictions due to the pandemic, it was a real problem. And they were fretting about all the asparagus rotting in the ground and stuff like that. I think in the end, they were able to get their contingent of Romanian uh, workers. But I thought what was interesting is, you know, all these media outlets were interviewing farmers. And they're like, yeah, but there's all these other people that don't have anything to do right now because the economy is shut down. And the farmer said, we don't need neophytes. We want the kind of like skilled agricultural workers that know what they're doing to do this kind of stuff. So part of me thinks that maybe uh, the Germans that were uh, seduced by the AFD are starting to understand that they want their asparagus and therefore they like these at least migrant workers. The other thing too is that if you look at the German healthcare se sector, which is obviously fighting the, on the front lines of this pandemic like anywhere else, you'll see that there's, a, there's a, a sizable share of the personnel that do have a migration background. So I don't know. I would like to think that there's a greater respect for migrants, for immigrants, for people with a migration background in Germany because of this crisis. And that's one of the reasons the AFD has lost support. However, a year from now, if things start to normalize and you still have persistently high unemployment, a lot of small businesses will probably go under, despite the uh, German state's support for um, that sector. Then we might see a resurgence of the AFD and their kind of populist slash xenophobic message. I think you know you touch you touch there on the the economic situation, and I think that is another you know um, important factor in the the relative comity, C O M I T Y, not C O M E D Y in German politics, because if you, you know, according to the Deutschland trend, which uh, this is, this, this data is uh, about 10 days old, um, but it's the most recent uh, data on this topic, uh, they asked Germans whether they felt themselves to be personally, uh, you know, heavily impacted, or um, does the pandemic have relatively little effect on them in their, their lives? And the majority said that there was no effect or little effect. Uh, on them as a result of the restrictions. Um, pretty striking. 69% uh, said there was no effect or little effect. I think as the economic impact of these, uh, of these measures uh, continues to grip and as it has spread throughout the German economy, um, it will, uh, it, it, that may be a key factor in, uh, in any potential change uh, in political support. 
Now, Germany, as we've uh, pointed out elsewhere, and if you read uh, a number of contributions on the AICGS uh, website, you'll see Germany has a different system of managing things like unemployment, and they've, uh, there's a program called Kurzarbeit, where essentially the government subsidizes companies to keep people on the payroll um, so that you don't have the massive surges in unemployment that we're experiencing in the United States. So I think that also helps to keep um, the, uh, the, the political expression of the economic dislocations to a minimum, at least in the short and medium term. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly correct. And I think it also shows that uh, Germany's a little bit more battle-tested, perhaps, when it comes to crises like, the, like this. Uh, they did similar things back um, after the Great Recession, um, 2008-2009, which seemed to work very well. And I think they're just trying to replicate their relative success from the last time around. Um, I don't know, but we'll see. I mean, the German auto uh, sector, which of course is one of the leading sectors of the economy, is certainly struggling right now, um, as are um, uh, producers over the entire world. It's hard for me to see where demand for their product is going to come from in the next, I don't know, six to 18 months. And so, I don't know, I, um, so far, so good, it seems. But, you know, I think this is going to be harder to get over than the last time around. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic has crowded out all of the other issues that uh, Germans used to say they cared about. In the, you know, if you look at the Politbarometer, um, it, just a couple of weeks ago, the top issue um, was climate. Um, and the second uh, highest rated issue as far as its importance uh, to German voters was migration. Um, now those are na- those are dwarfed now by the the pandemic. Of course, that's uh, be a surprise if it were otherwise. But as as we move past this first phase of the pandemic, then I think you're going to see the battleground shift. For example, um, if if the German government is going to to try to reboot the uh, the uh, so-called Abwrackprämie, uh, uh, the sort of subsidy for new new automobile purchase. Uh, is that going to be connected with some kind of uh, climate change target? You can certainly expect the Social Democrats to push for it. The opposition Greens will. And I think we're going to have uh, a, a pretty robust debate about whether this pandemic becomes an opportunity to push forward a green agenda, which at least some parts, uh, at least the chancellor and some of her uh, senior uh, ministers have uh, have some sympathy for. Or um, is this going to be a, uh, you know, are we, are we going to revert to the traditional dividing lines in German politics. And that's something we've been talking about in recent days, Eric. You know, to what degree has the paradigm shift that some people have discussed over recent years, is it snapping back um, to something more akin to what we've known? Yeah, I mean, so you have that old socioeconomic cleavage between left and right as epitomized by the CDU on the one hand and the SPD on the other hand. And those parties have been losing in support over the last, I guess, you know, three to four year period. And it was the parties of this new cleavage, more like a cultural cleavage or, or a quality of life cleavage, perhaps one could, one could say, with the AFD and the Greens um, representing the two sides of that pool, they were the ones that were surging. So it's really quite fascinating that that new cleavage seems to be falling by the wayside, at least for now, and the old cleavage and support for those, those more established parties um, has been increasing quite a bit. The question, of course, is, as I think you were rightfully alluding to, is this a more permanent kind of shift back to the way things used to be, or is it only temporary? 
And once we get through the worst of this crisis, will there be a resurgence of interest in the climate? Will there be um, a resurgence of fears about migration and what have you? That's really the million dollar question right now in German politics. And I don't think anybody really knows how long this moment is going to last. Mm-hmm. You know, Eric, you're, because you are a, a, a political scientist and a, a, it can bring maybe some comparative perspective to this, but certainly the thing that strikes me is there is a, a culture of risk aversion in uh, and responsibility in Germany. Uh, and, and in political terms, what you see, I think, in the surging support for the CDU is a, is a kind of risk aversion. Uh, Germans, in, in opinion polls going back many, many years, they have far and away more trust in the CDU to manage the economy. Um, and, and so you have, um, you know, perhaps when that, when that core concern um, comes to the fore, uh, you have a, a rally around the CDU flag because of the confidence people have in that uh, in their ability to manage uh, to manage the, the economic health of the of the German economy. Well, but that brings up the other massive issue that's been repressed by this crisis response, which is who's going to lead the CDU going forward, and who might be or who might have the best chances to be the next chancellor. I mean, Merkel has said repeatedly, including I think just in the last couple of days, when some people, given her popularity, have said, oh, how about a fifth term after all? And she said, no, she's done. So there will be a new chancellor. Although, to be completely honest, she also said after her third big victory that that was going to be her last term, and then she changed her mind. So, of course, never say never in politics, but there's a very high likelihood that we're going to have a new chancellor. And um, we also know that the current leader of the CDU, Annegret, I'm so sad that I'm not going to be able to say her name as much anymore because she's stepping down. It's a great German name, I do have to say. But uh, there's going to be a new leader of the CDU and there's going to be a new chancellor. So, Jeff, what are your thoughts on who has the best chances right now? I know what my thoughts are. Okay. Well, the first thing, uh, you know, it it seems like uh, ages ago, but it was really just two months ago that uh, uh, Karambauer um, I'll also mention saying that name, I miss saying that name, uh, that she announced she was going to step down. It, it, took, uh, it took everyone by surprise. And, uh, and there was supposed to be, just uh, over this past weekend, a uh, CDU party convention to elect a successor. And so there's very quickly a four, actually three-person race that emerged between um, the former challenger, um, Friedrich Merz, uh, the Minister President of North Rhine-Westphalia, Armin Laschet, and the Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Bundestag, Norbert Röttgen. Um, that, that debate and that uh, tussle over who would lead the CDU has been drowned out, uh, and I think, you know, rightfully so, but uh, of course also the candidates themselves uh, realize that now is the time not to focus on political squabbling, but instead on addressing this crisis. So we've had a postponement by well, essentially eight months of the decision, because now by all indications, it will be at the December party conference that the CDU will choose its new leader. Uh, And so, pardon me, readjust the, there we go. Um, So I think first we've got a long time to go. There is sort of, you can call it almost an incumbency bonus to uh, Armin Laschet in North Rhine-Westphalia uh, because he is the leader of Germany's largest state, uh, running a government uh, with a population uh, of 20 million people. 
And, and so he has every opportunity to keep himself in the public spotlight, to demonstrate his um, competence, leading a, you know, the, both the political but also the technical response to the coronavirus. And, and I think it's also interesting to note that he has positioned himself you know, a bit uh, you know, in, to the kind of loosening side, um, the accelerating side of political leaders who want to see Germany get back to work, albeit you know, cautiously and without taking unnecessary risks. So I think that gives him a, a great advantage that the others don't have. Yeah, but that's also a very risky path. Um, as we're also seeing in the United States with many governors that are contemplating or implementing loosening measures, right? If um, the worst is over and we can manage it given uh, whatever means we have going forward, then they're going to look like heroes for, you know, doing the right thing to reopen the economy, which everybody wants, of course, um, sooner as opposed to later. But if it backfires and we see a resurgence of infections, then a, a politician like Laschet will take a big hit. I mean, already he's getting some pretty bad press. The last couple of days he was on a talk show and that didn't go over very well with, you know, some commentators and whatnot that, you know, maybe he's being too aggressive in um, advocating for loosening measures. So, I mean, yes, he's got some advantages, but he's also on a very risky course. Friedrich Merz, on the other hand, has been, you know, almost completely absent. Of course, he was um, tragically... Um, infected with the virus and was in um, quarantine for um, several weeks. And so that, of course, accounts for, for part of that. But, you know, th there's a lot of reporting that he's very consciously kind of laying low and mm -hmm. letting others kind of um, make mistakes. And then he can kind of, you know, emerge as, uh, as kind of the victor. Um, I've seen also some very interesting commentary about how he would be the perfect leader of the CDU and a perfect next chancellor precisely because he understands the economy so well, right? Having worked in the private sector for many years, I think most recently in BlackRock, Germany. So a lot of people think that he has the experience and the skill set to um, uh, lead the economy back towards prosperity. So we'll see. What's interesting is that, um, at least in, in terms of what I've seen, there's very little um, talk about Rutgen at all. He just almost seems like an afterthought. Um, and I'm not sure that he's going to have very good chances. But I, don't know. I think the, I think he's got a structural he's got a structural problem that he has to that he has to deal with, and that is, um, you know, all three of these men are from North Rhine-Westphalia. Um, they and you know, German politics is regional and in some cases local. Uh, and, and and so I think, you know, when it comes to the 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 record that each of them has to uh, to boast. Uh, it, the the fact that uh, that Norbert Rutgen was uh, unsuccessful in his campaign for the minister president position in North Rhine-Westphalia, whereas Armin Laschet was successful, it means two things. It means one, he's got a record of success uh, that Laschet does that he can um, that, that burnishes his image, uh, and second, it means that he has a connection to his state party organization. Uh, that is that that's far surpasses that of the other of the other two, whatever the rhetorical and political gifts um, uh, may be that that uh, that Rutgen and uh, Mertz both uh, both possess, and they're you know they're they're both uh, smart individuals, and it's hard to come away from uh, listening to either of them without feeling that they are 
you know, people who have uh, you know, a lot of talents. Um, so, so I think, you know, that, that, that structural element, I think it's also about a little bit about expectation management to come back, Eric, to the, the, the point you made that it's a long time between now and December. I think there's, there are two aspects of this uh, going on. One is the public, uh, you know, support and confidence. And, and I think that is a question of fundamentally about communication. There will probably be a second wave of, uh, of, of this um, pandemic. Uh, I think if we look at you know, previous uh, experience, especially the Spanish flu from 100 years ago, you see that quite starkly. And, if you, and you see some anecdotal uh, suggestions of that in what's been happening in places like Singapore. So you know, it's, it's not that there will be um, you know, that, that a resurgence of the virus would uh, cripple the candidacy of somebody like Armin Laschet. I think it's a question of being honest about what the risks are um, and showing that you are on top of uh, monitoring and responding to changes um, as, as the circumstances warrant. So I think that's on the public side. But really, what it really comes down to is 1,001 delegates to the CDU party convention who are going to have to cast their votes. And I think for those people, they'll have some different considerations in mind. It will not just be, you know, how do I, how do I feel about uh, the, the way North Rhine-Westphalia under Armin Laschet has been managing the pandemic, um, but it will be about who who is best positioned to win an election. Um, what is the complicated? And here maybe we'll transition to the CSU and Marcus Zodar. Uh, what is you know who can best manage that relationship with the CSU, yeah. uh, and and who is going to position the party for for winning uh, the. 2021 election, uh, as the CDU has famously been described over the years, uh, it's a Kanzlerwahlverein. Uh, you know, it's not an ideological party. It is a party that strives above all to, uh, to you know, achieve and to retain power. Yeah, and so what are the crucial variables? Is going to be how these um, three candidates fare in the South. I think, especially in Baden-Württemberg. And it seems that Meritz is the um, the most popular uh, candidate of the three in that very crucial uh, state. I also think that Meritz has pretty good connections to uh, the Bavarians and that the CSU would probably prefer Meritz more than anybody else. So right now my money would be on on that. But then that, that raises the other question, as you just alluded to, Jeff, about, well, okay, so the CDU leadership is one thing. and then the chancellor candidate for the 2021 Bundestag election is the other thing. And um, everything that I've been seeing, at least the last little while, um, indicates that uh, the Bavarians and Marcus Suda in particular are gonna push for him to be the, uh, the chancellor candidate for the combined CDU-CSU, which of course always um, campaigns nationally together and then is in a perpetual um, uh, unified a fraction in the German uh, parliament. Um, what do you think, Jeff? Do you think that Söder has good chances? The last couple of times that a Bavarian has tried, this is going back to um, Franz Josef Strauss in, what, 1980? And then yep. at Neubel in uh, 2002. Um, yep. It hasn't worked out very well. And so for a long time, the conventional wisdom in German politics has been that a Bavarian chancellor candidate is toxic and that uh, you would just not try that again, especially when people think that both the 1980 and the 2002 elections were winnable 
by the um, center right. And they, of course, lost both of those. So what do you think? Um, you know, how much would you put on um, Suda getting that uh, nomination? Well, you know, it, I, there, are, there are several threads here that I'd like to pull apart and then maybe weave back together. The first one is that the, the, the pandemic has, has really complicated the CDUs and the CDU-CSU approach to this. The first uh, plan was that you would have a new party leader elected in April, and then you would have presumably the remainder of this calendar year to figure out, um, for that leader, to figure out with Marcus Zuder uh, how they would approach the chancellor, uh, the so-called the so the, the chancellor question. Um, now they've got to do these both in, in fairly rapid or almost simultaneously. Uh, because you will have uh, you'll have a party convention in December, and it will be a bit late. I mean, you could you could try to put off that decision until early 2021, uh, but I think it will just be a nagging kind of corrosive issue if it's not addressed at the same time that uh, that the new the new chairman of the CDU is is elected. So so that that makes uh, that makes this much more difficult. Um, thus far, Marcus Suter has been uh, you know at the forefront of the, among the state leaders who have been managing the pandemic. And you know, in Bavaria, but also at the national level, he has gained a fair amount of respect. It's, it's perhaps uh, difficult to remember, but uh, it, it was really just, uh, just a bit over a year ago that you still had Marcus Zuder engaged in this battle with, uh, with Horst Zehofer for the leadership of the CSU. Um, and, and so from that, position as kind of an insurgent trying to, uh, to assert his control over the CSU. Marcus Zutter has very quickly become something of, a, of maybe not an elder statesman because of his uh, uh, relatively young age, but certainly a, an established figure in the firmament of conservative politics. Yep, agreed. You know, what's also really interesting is that when um, Suter won uh, the Landtagswahl in Bavaria, what was that, like a year and a half ago by now? Um, he had really tacked to the right. I mean, he was really trying to um, reappropriate the space that the AFD has taken. Um, so Sitter was advocating a harder line on immigration and stuff like that. And he's kind of reinvented himself because you don't hear that kind of stuff coming um, out of his mouth these days. So I don't know. I mean, I have to say I'm also personally very impressed with his uh, political prowess. Um, it's hard for politicians to tack left, tack right, to um, come up with new issues that they can own. Um, so I think that he's definitely a political force to be reckoned with. Yeah, and and I think as as you were saying uh, earlier in a different context, but I think if there is uh, it, the management skills that uh, either the CDU chairman or Marcus Zuder will have to demonstrate over the coming months are going to be crucial in, in determining who is, who is best positioned to lead the CDU-CSU into the next uh, election. Um, I think it's, it's going to be um, you know, less about um, you know, any, any inherent claims uh, that one side or another has uh, on, uh, on the chancellor candidacy, but uh, who, who is gonna be most likely to emerge victorious and against whom? Uh, you know, just uh, just a few uh, months ago, it, it looked like the Greens would be, you know, the uh, 
far and away, you know, far and away the second uh, strongest party uh, to emerge from a German election. Uh, and, and some people were even speculating about whether the SPD needed to nominate a chancellor candidate. Maybe it wouldn't be necessary if they were you know, struggling somewhere between third and fourth place. But, uh, but now things look a bit different. Uh, I, I would point out that uh, Olaf Scholz, the finance minister and vice chancellor, has been uh, the second most popular politician uh, in, in Germany and uh, has had strong, um, uh, strong personal uh, ratings uh, in that regard, um, even as the SPD has languished um, fairly, uh, fairly low in the polls. I, I think there's, there's a lot of latent potential for if the government mismanages things, for there to be kind of a, a, a shift to some kind of alternative. Um, and the SPD still has, at least in Scholz, a well-trusted, uh, nationally recognized figure of stature uh, and skill who, uh, who, could, uh, who could lead uh, them in an election. Um, but I think that's a story for another day. Definitely. All right. Well, um, I, I want to thank you for uh, take, taking some time to sit down and have a have a conversation about uh, about German politics in the coronavirus uh, era. I think there will be plenty for us to come back to uh, in the in the weeks and months ahead. And I want to thank all of our listeners and viewers for uh, for coming and joining us today. And uh, we will see you next time on Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to the Zeitgeist a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören!